Welcome to Thrive at Work, the podcast that brings trends, insights, and practical tips to help employers attract, develop, and retain great people. Here, you'll find inspiring conversations with experts in their field and companies doing amazing work to shape a future where people can thrive. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Thrive at Work. I'm Polly and today we are discussing alternative ways to manage and promote positive mental health. I'm really delighted to be joined today by Nick Elston, a leading voice in the lived experience of mental health. The focus of Nick's work is where mental health meets personal development. Nick is an inspirational speaker and has developed programs, tools and techniques to help people manage anxiety and find their voice as a catalyst to truly step up. So mental health is something that we've discussed on this podcast before. However, I think Nick can bring a really interesting angle to this, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome, Nick. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Polly. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Nice to meet you. Thank you. (laughs) So I'm going to go straight in there. What is your why? What is the purpose behind uh, why you do what you do? (laughs) It's a big question for all of us, isn't it? Why do we do what we do? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so from I guess this is an interesting one. I think that my my why would say weirdly is 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 legacy. Um, it comes from uh, an experience of of mental illness which I've had since childhood, in namely obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and as I got older, it morphed into something called generalized anxiety disorder, which is essentially obsessive compulsive anxiety. So. Um, but you, we can be fueled by that, I guess, and we could be highly successful, highly performing as highly anxious people. So actually, it stood me in really good stead through education um, and into my professional corporate life, always client facing, very successful in what I did. Um, but of course, the downside of running on high anxiety is you can only run for so long until you stop. And therein mm-hmm. lies the problem. And I stopped in 2012. I had a breakdown and it was following that breakdown after decades of burnout that um, I then started to find that being able to speak with vulnerability and with authenticity, it started to build a bridge of trust with people far deeper, stronger and faster than any superficial messaging that we're trained to deliver will ever achieve. And by me sharing my stuff, people started sharing their stuff with me. And two big realizations happened then, Polly. The first one was I can never be a counselor or a coach, far too empathic. I just felt massively overwhelmed already. Um, but the second thing was, I just felt deeply saddened, actually, is it why do we all have our challenges and our issues, and especially in a professional environment, but why do we not reach out for help? And that was the bit that started kind of going around my head. Uh, and that's the bit that I decided to, to focus on. So I started to speak, the rooms got bigger, the audiences got bigger, I started to travel the world doing this stuff, and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, but it's focusing on the engagement piece. I'm not solution-focused. I'm not a coach, I'm not a counsellor in that sense. Um, But what I do focus on is removing the barriers why people don't reach out for help and actually the impact of poor mental health. And as you say, it's impact on our personal development, how it takes away our courage and our confidence and our conviction. It affects our sense of belonging. And that's why I do what I do now. And lots of different levels, not just in in corporates and businesses. And obviously, uh, most of your audience, I assume, will be in the workplace environment. But I also run uh, uh, programs in the prison system. I run them in the education system, all around this concept of transformation through speaking. Um, Parents get this, by the way. Prisons, far easier than schools. (laughs) 
<laughs> I get back up in prisons. I get armed back up in prisons. I don't get that in schools. <laughs> so, so I guess that that's my why really is it's it's my legacy. I, I'm dad to a small shit zoo, and that's it. So legacy stops and ends with what I do with my professional life. <laughs> Great, thank you for that. Why do you think there are barriers? Why do you think people don't reach out and speak up and ask for help? Again, there's certainly generationally and culturally there are challenges to this. I remember being told growing up, don't trust work with your personal stuff. That's a barrier. Um, People have a real fear around anonymity. So why don't people engage in employee assistance programs, for example? Actually, it's because the... The kind of the old guard fear was being dismissed or judged or ridiculed for engaging those things whereas i know they are completely anonymous and i think that's the reason why so actually it's not so much why people aren't engaging now but it's why we've been conditioned not to engage previously so there is change and there's cultural change going on but societally there's also changes as well so i do a lot of work in the us for example which is very different to the uk in that sense whereas in the uk Maybe we've been brought up to believe that self-care is selfish, so we'll feel guilty when we put ourselves before anything or anyone, so we don't, and we run again a little weaker tomorrow. We will have no problem in helping people around us, but we don't offer the same courtesy to ourselves. We don't value ourselves enough. So actually, why don't people reach out? Is it education? Is it inspiration? Is it motivation? Or actually, is it self-esteem? Do we not value ourselves enough to reach out for help, especially in a professional environment? And bear in mind your your responsibility and your role and what you do as a, as a people people, um, that there's also added layer of for, for HR professionals, learning and development professionals, leaders, office managers, team leaders, who looks after the people that looks after people. So it's not just about the people that are around you, it's about how do you support yourself whilst you support everybody else. And that can be a real challenge because we feel selfish when we do prioritise ourselves. But to me, selfish is crucial. Mm. Mm, yeah it's really interesting that thank you yeah the HR um yeah I was just saying to somebody yesterday about how much the HR profession has changed so much in the last few years and the HR people have almost taken on this counselling role but I think it's important again like you said to recognise that we are not trained counsellors unless you happen to have gone through um a training course which actually does qualify you but I see my job as listening, listening and then signposting and just being a sympathetic ear. Sometimes that can be helpful, but recognising where your limitations and boundaries are. um, Absolutely. Because you you can't take on everybody's uh, problems and you you shouldn't either. So, um, (laughs) yeah, it's just recognising, I think, where you are qualified to help and what you can do to assist. And I think listening is is a huge part of that, but recognising that you can't provide symptoms always but you can signpost on to where people can get further help yeah absolutely we, we may not be medical professionals or solution focused mm. practitioners but we are hoping to be striving to be decent human beings so therefore actually something that i lead with i call it disarming truth that, that tell people up front why you're there give people the context of why you're there and mm. whether it's on my LinkedIn header or whether it's in front of a room of people or a stage, wherever, wherever I am at the time, my opening gambit will be, I am not solution focused. I'm not your coach, your counselor, your guru. I'm not here to fix you. Those are my rules. The bit I do focus on is the engagement bit. And, and again, because I'm very open about that, people engage with me in the right way. And as you said, if you're trying to support other people, get in their buy-in, actually asking them the question right from the start. As for example, as an HR leader, 
you're going to have big, heavy conversations with people because you have trust and rapport with people. So what I say to people when they reach out and I have hundreds of conversations every month around this stuff and people experiencing all extremes of mental health and mental illness, I say, well, thank you so much for sharing that with me. But as you know, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a coach, I'm not a medical professional, but I will listen to you as much as you want to be listened to. I will support you as much as I can. And as you said, then I'll signpost you to the help that could be really good for you right now. But ask the question, is that okay with you? Because mm. if it's not okay with them, or if they are at a point of crisis, and there is an emergency call. Um, but very often in a noisy world, essentially in life, we just want to be heard and understood. And and the, the commonality for me is, is when people lose hope or the hope of something better, that's when the world gets quite a dark and dangerous place for a lot of people. So our mm. role is not to fix, it's to give people hope or the hope of mm. something better and to show them a way forward that they don't see right now. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. And when you were mentioning um, before just about barriers and, you know, why people may not reach out and ask for help, mm. do you see a difference in the genders typically or, or not? Absolutely. Yeah, it's the, 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 and it's an interesting one, even with, um, I would say most of my audiences uh, that are choosing to be there are predominantly female um and but most of the questions that i get as a male working in this space which surprisingly is still very rare in in, yeah. in the space that i work in under this umbrella um the what i find is that most of the questions i get are asked about supporting males how do i help my brother son father husband that kind of stuff so there is absolutely a divide but again understanding that divide and understanding that things don't change over and overnight is also understanding that lived experience isn't the answer which sounds weird as that's the only thing that I have really but lived experience but for me lived experience is the perfect vehicle to drive engagement to the answers so even yesterday I was at an event and I, I was talking to a business uh, and there was a actually quite a high percentage of males in the room um, and you could just tell the arms dropped as I went through the talk they were the first to ask questions afterwards because what you do is you kind of I'm not there with any agenda of trying to fix people or diagnose people. That's not me. I'm there to give give them the ammunition to ask themselves better questions. So the arms start to drop, and then they, you start to see these questions turn over their heads. And and afterwards, I get the questions. So for me, that's kind of it's knowing your role in all these things is the most important thing. But there is an absolute divide for sure. Mm, interesting. Thank you. And you were also mentioning about um, you know employee assistance programs and people not being maybe perhaps a little bit reluctant to um, to engage or utilize the services that are available to them. Yeah. What advice would you give to organisations to encourage people to engage and use you know the services that are available? Yeah, I think my advice would be to go for the negative questioning route. It's not asking yourself um, why should people engage in this. It's actually why don't people engage in this. That's a far more positive way to look at this. So actually addressing up front the barriers why people aren't engaging. And people will tell you. I mean, I, if you have a, an access to, I very often act as a neutral voice, so I can have more open conversations because I'm not seen as the face of the company in that sense. Mm. Um, but asking people why people don't engage in stuff, as I mentioned, that generational and cultural, for sure. Um, there's also anonymity, as I said, that's the biggest one, I think. But there's also elements, especially at the moment, with things like the cost of living crisis and things that, actually there's an assumption of that is going to cost them some money. Um, so very often with employee assistance programs, as you know, at least initially, you have access to things straight away at no cost. And so it's, it's kind of really addressing the reason why people aren't engaging in this stuff. Because where I live in uh, 
close to you, I think we're in the southwest of the UK, that it's about a three and a half month waiting list for CBT assessment for therapy. It's not mm-hmm. for therapy, it's for assessment to see if you qualify for therapy. Whereas through an employee assistance program, I could probably get help tomorrow for work for a large organization. So why do we do that? Why do we not engage? And that's the, the, the questioning I would like to encourage is why don't people engage in this? You can have all the initiatives under the sun, but unless you get the engagement, absolutely nothing will change. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think as well, there's an element of, um, I don't know, sometimes the first time you do something can be a little bit alarming, can't it? It can be a bit scary. You're reaching out to someone who's a stranger. Ultimately, you don't know this person. You don't know what the process is going to be like once you start to pick up the phone or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so that's that- kind of if, you, if you're promoting things. So I have a like a, an app you can add to your home screen where it has quick access to Samaritans and Mind and, and NHS. And so even if it's if you're not ready for that step to reach out for support, um, Samaritans is a really useful thing just to have, just to have in your phone, to have to hand. Um, and you can have a neutral voice without putting any name to that. But it is important to stress that the anonymity side of things, I'm married to an HR leader too. I get your world completely. I've really bought in on this stuff. Um, I've seen the back end of EAPs. I work with some providers um, uh, in some ways, uh, delivering webinars. I've seen all the back engines of this stuff and all of it is anonymous. There are no names attributed to all of these things in the reports. We only ever see the facts and figures. You never see the name. So I think sometimes it takes an outside voice to reassure people too. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that's just one example. There are all, you know, all the other health initiatives and strategies that an employer could employ as mm. well. Oh, um, absolutely. Mm, so there's quite quite a lot of uh, an engagement work there to do, isn't there? Mm. I think some of the some of the most powerful engagement pieces at the moment are are non-solution focused in that way, because very often and not exclusively with men, but especially with men, we don't want to be fixed breaking news we do want to be fixed but we don't want anybody else to see we want to be fixed so um very often some of the most kind of proactive things i see in some of my clients at the moment are like talking groups for example so talking groups are very powerful because there's not an agenda to be fixed it's just a space to have a a chat with other people and it's only when you start to share your combination of experiences do you realize you're not alone because we all think we're completely unique in our own experiences but it's because we don't talk about it. It's because we don't share mm. our experiences. And oh. I've shared some really kind of niche experiences of mine, things like uh, dermatillomania, which is compulsive skin picking. And I, and I just threw that into it. I don't t- talk about it in the main, but I, it's something that I kind of threw into the mix and it just really starts to sow seeds with people. I get that because you've heard somebody talk about it. So I think lived experience, talking groups, and taking an alternate approach to get to the solutions is a really healthy thing. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so how do you help people to manage their anxiety? What, what were your tips around that? Great question. So I think for me, the, the, the kind of the gist of my of my speaking work, um, I guess there's two answers to this. Um, the gist of my speaking work comes from certainly fact checking. So think about something you're anxious about right now. Think about something you're really stressed about and actually qualify it is this fact and if it is fact we can deal with fact avoid the closure or avoid waiting for closure and go straight to the to the source so if you have some beef with people f- speak to the people directly don't message don't wait for closure um 
but very often for me 90% of the time it's the narrative it's what it's a story you're telling yourself about the situation and two smaller sides on that I mean I have clients in Ukraine who are dealing fantastically well with a conflict going on right outside the door right now and I have clients in Poland who are not dealing with it as well because they have a threat of conflict or invasion and that's an interesting one so very often it's the fear of something causes far more anxiety than the actual thing that's in front of us even if that thing is big and hairy and scary and I've seen this play out not only in that situation, but I work with a lot of hospices and donate time to end of care treatment and that kind of stuff. And when people have a, a diagnosis, have a problem, they can deal with that. What they can't deal with is the waiting for something. Mm. Um, on a very minor but comical level, if anyone's ever had a row with their partner or a best friend by iMessage or text message, the three dots causes far more anxiety than the actual end of that conversation every time. <laughs> Avoid the three dots in life is a pretty good rule of thumb. <laughs> I can see that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh wow gosh there are some extreme examples you've just given but how interesting and I think it underlines a point that the, the fear yeah because you, you don't know what you're facing whereas once something's happened then you you do know what you're facing and then at least you can start to you know try and start to deal with that Exactly. Um, it's an acceptance piece, you see. And it's the same with, um, I run a program called Find Your Voice. And um, within that program, I help people to speak, essentially. Um, but it's not just about the stage stuff. I think speaking is is life, it's business, it's education, it's your ability to deliver any message to anybody, um, whether it's one person at home or a stage or a room full of people, um, with emotion and clarity and power. So is part of the, the the event I run that I get people to stand up and start to speak about their own emotional stories to a room full of strangers. And again, that anxiety mechanism is always in the head because they've told themselves that they're not going to be very good at this. They've told themselves that they're going to get heckled. And according to Harvard, public speaking is a greater fear than death. We fear ridicule more than we do dying. We're screwed, <laughs> genuinely. So the point is that actually in reality, when people try this stuff, and it's the reason I never address anxiety and nerves to the afternoon of the event, I get people doing stuff first because you need to have what your experience is on these things. Very often we talk ourselves into a losing game. What I try to do in, in the, the speaking work that I do and also the speaking coaching work that I do is try to get people to talk themselves into a winning game. Yeah. Amazing. So if you don't, then you could easily talk yourself into really not achieving your 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 best or your, your you know what you can could actually get out of life and achieve. Yeah. But if you do manage to conquer that voice inside that's telling you you're not going to be any good or it's all going to go wrong, if you do manage to conquer that and actually say, well, I'm going to try it anyway, see yes. what happens. Um, that can have huge impact on actually how how things turn out for you, long term, short term. Um, it's extraordinary. And I have read somewhere that um, it's our way of our brains keeping us safe, because if we stay in our comfort zone, well, we know that it's comfortable. It's our comfort zone. And so if we don't step outside of that, nothing bad's going to happen to us. <laughs> But that's the interesting thing, though, with comfort zones, that, that absolutely be comfortable. And I've certainly found that with my relationship with things like body image and food and um, back in the day, alcohol. Again, that's a whole different story. But um, in terms of uh, comfort zones, you can also look at toxic relationships, comfort zones. That is actually easier to stay in a position of pain and frustration than it is to do something about it 
so we stay, we run again a little weaker tomorrow. So they're not always healthy, even though they feel more comfortable. Um, and I think when people start to recognize that, they can start to see that they have all the answers that they'll ever need. It's just about asking yourself better questions. We always mm. look internally for help, always. But maybe mm. you just need to look internally first. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and the the examples you gave before that were really quite extreme, you know, people dealing with, uh, you know, conflict happening and people dealing with the threat of conflict yeah. potentially about to happen. That, that, that field, that's very extreme. But if we bring that back to a sort of work scenario, so it might be um, speaking up in a meeting or it might be oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, asking for that pay rise or it might be asking to do to be put on a project that you haven't been put on or you know it, it could it could come down to something like that couldn't it but I guess it's similar it's a similar sort of theory yeah it is exactly the same theory and the actual the theory that on this that that started actually with an example that was given to me by uh, a young student um a couple of years ago now and this young girl said to me what really makes me anxious Nick is when I message my friend and my friend doesn't message me back we've all been there right just me <laughs> but that's not what makes her anxious. Well, that's the transaction. What's making her anxious is the story she's telling herself about that transaction. Mm. And that she's been judged or offended. I've rejected, they've been rejected, they don't love me anymore. The other realities she could have chosen were they're on holiday, they haven't seen the message, they're swimming. They're, there's so many things that could have been, but we always go with worst case scenario. So actually mm. the problem is an assumption. So bringing that into a workplace environment is still fact versus story that we talk ourselves out of situations before we actually get to that space. Now, there are things you can do. So one of the, the, the huge downsides of having mental health challenges is you can become very subservient to people. So you end up being a people pleaser in that sense and to use a common term. Um, you give yourself away to appease other people, to appease other situations. So you may have to put structures in place. So a very simple one could be um, if you have trouble saying no to people, um, then if somebody asks you to do something, you just say, actually, can I get back to you in two minutes? Take a mm. step back, breathe, <laughs> and say, actually, no, I can't. I'm really sorry. But it's giving yourself these kind of little buffer zones. Certainly in a workplace environment, it can be challenging, but the challenge is still only in our own heads. We never know until we go for that opportunity, that promotion, that application, whatever that thing looks like, go for that pay rise, as you said. I do a lot of work in the tech community, and uh, I remember working with an organization where they had one female tech coder um, in, in a room full of male coders, all very kind of quite dominant in their terms of characteristics. So I said, absolutely, you should be heard and absolutely you can be heard, but you're going to have to do things something a little bit differently. So in terms of um, she was very softly spoken. So just ask for the room, ask for the attention of the room so that you can contribute. She said, that'll never work because in her own head, it just wasn't playing out. I said, just try it. You've got nothing to lose. And she phoned me the day after she said it worked. They listened to me completely and then they moved on and they took my took my. Um, my opinion love that so very often the challenges up here we talk ourselves into a losing game so whatever you are projecting understand that we're hardwired to look for danger we're hardwired to look for fear so that's going to be your go-to change your mindset to talk yourself into a winning game because even if you don't get there you're going to have a better outcome than you did before by looking negatively does that make sense yeah yeah no it makes perfect sense and 
Yeah, I mean, I've I've had my own experiences of this as well. And one thing I tell myself to do is just take the first step, just mm. do the first thing, whatever it is, and yeah, then absolutely. you can stop. Then you can stop if if you know, just do the first thing because if you do one thing every day but you know you are going to eventually make slow progress but actually once you start I find it's once you st the starting is the hardest thing <laughs> whatever it is really just is. making that first step so um yeah I do frequently have to tell myself just do the first thing <laughs> yeah. I think you're right it's something sports coaches call marginal gains they're like daily incremental consistent changes and yeah. Um, it's the same principles like couch to 5k you run a little bit faster every day a little bit longer every day and eventually you run 5k apparently yeah. um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> i'll let you know when i get there i usually give up on week four i'm quite a this is it i'm quite a booming bust person by nature so for, I, I i absolutely agree that that doesn't work so i'm like you know, i have to really work hard at what's the smallest thing i can do tomorrow to point myself in the right direction but I think it's understanding the narrative, but also understanding that that we're kind of pioneers in that sense that you are, if you look at my Find Your Voice Day, I would say of 50 people, 40 are female. But when I get to stage events or stadium events, the big stuff, the big hall stuff, I would say still 80% are male. There are disconnects still. So you are kind of fighting against generational and cultural backdrops of disconnect. So that only changes by people stepping up, sharing opinion, finding their voice in that sense. And I think that's a really good test. If you work in an environment where you feel heard, really good test, um, that you're allowed to have an opinion and then follow that opinion through to an action, that you can say no to people you want to say no to or yes to people you want to say yes to. In fact, even this morning, I had a message from somebody saying that, they're too honest about their experiences. I think they were looking for a new job about their experiences with their last job. And she said, should I stop being honest? I said, well, you could, and you could get a job, but then you, because of that lack of transparency, you might end up in the same situation. The right people will get you. And sometimes you can be in the wrong place, in the wrong situation, in the wrong backdrop. And as we both know, that sometimes can send you off in different directions when you have the realization. But it all comes back to we have all the answers we'll ever need. It's just about asking yourself better questions. Yeah, and I think maybe being focused as well, being a little bit focused on, you know, we are so busy. There's so much noise around. It's so easy to be distracted. Yeah. But if, you, if you're quite focused on your goal, um, you know, and what that helps you to then prioritise for the month and then the week, and then you break that down into the day even, right? So what am I going to do today that brings me just slightly closer to that goal um that can help me get focused certainly on because otherwise there's just so much distraction <laughs> yeah. there, it really is and we've got these shoulds and coulds and, and this is this is a, such a a great point you've brought out really is this, the shoulds and coulds bit is that um people expect me to go into organizations talking about mental health uh, they they think I'm going to look like Joe Wicks. I'm a fat Joe Wicks. I'll take that. We call it a lot worse. Um, but there's shoulds and coulds. There's other shoulds that I'm going to be dry and clinical. That's not me at all. But that's some people's idea in the workplace of mental health initiatives that I'm going to be dry and clinical and it's going to be really heavy to engage with. And that's not me at all. The other extreme is they think I'm going to be fluffy. I'm going to light a bonfire outside, run around naked with a joss stick in my mouth. I'm up for anything, by the way. 
but but somewhere in the middle is the truth. And I think these are kind of the shoulds and coulds. Um, even as a as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, um, I should be on social media all over the place, but I'm not. I'm on LinkedIn, and that's it. Because actually, why do I have to do something because we feel that we should do something to be a business owner or to be um, go your own way, find your own way. And and actually, if you can find something, whether it's personally or professionally, that you do through choice, that you're you're emotionally connected to in a positive way then it doesn't feel like a chore and then it doesn't feel like you're fighting a battle. And, and mm-hmm. I would, any fans of personal development will know that you, most of the books you read will make you feel that you're a rubbish human being. If you don't do everything in that book, because everyone wants you to do it their way. Take it from an old guy looking back. There is no way to do things as your way. You build a playbook from, if there's one line of this conversation that's jumped out for people listening today, put that in your playbook. That's part of your playbook. But it's not one rule book for everybody. And then we need to come away from that, I think. Mm, yeah, interesting. Um, you were talking about your find your voice day um, yeah. and the different attendees that you get. Yeah. Um, I was just interested. Are they people that have signed up individually or have their workplaces suggested that they go? Or how does that work? No, it's it's all individuals. Uh, there, there are individuals from organisations, um, but mm. usually it's people that have signed up themselves. Um, it's people from all walks of life. I've had professional sports people, um, TV celebrities, but I've also had engineers and people from the military and GPs. And the, the, the commonality is that asking yourself, do you feel that you're truly being heard in, in life, in business, in education, at home? And if the answer is no, that's where I come in. What I do isn't presentation skills. It's not kind of Toastmasters. It's not that kind of stuff. What I do is around the transformation through speaking changing your narrative to change your experience so what i get people to do is to start to engage in emotional storytelling and without giving the whole game away i've got emotional exercises in the morning where we go through a whole gambit of delivering anger or love or sadness and um i also have uh, an amazing team that supports me my my entourage um, I have Emma Nesta, who's from uh, one of the vocal coaches from the X Factor. She comes and does some warm-up exercises with me, and that's really cool. Uh, I've got my well-being guru, Zoe Thompson, so she's there doing her thing and keeping everybody at peak state throughout. I've got a laughter yoga guy, James. He comes and does an energizer in the afternoon. And, and all the way through, I've got my photographer and my videographer capturing these kind of moments. And it just makes it all seem very real for people. The people that at the start of the day really struggle to stand up and say their name. By the end of a day, I'm kind of like trying to get them off with a, with a, a cane. So like, <laughs> you're done, time out. Because if you give people an environment where they feel safe and trusted and supported and non-judgmental kind of environment, people will share everything. I've had mm. people come out on these days one of the last people that really spoke um, was in the last one in June, um, they were sharing their experiences of um, of historic abuse. And which, which sounds really, really heavy, but in the, in the context that it was done, was ultimately powerful. And what was she was doing was giving other people permission to share their experiences. Because I also give people the caveat, you can make stuff up. I don't want you to go to a place you don't want to go, even if the room's safeguarded, which it absolutely is. Um, but when you give people an environment, they will go everywhere because actually we're essentially it's a very human experience. And it's for me, it's that kind of. I guess it's the accountability that lived experience is the perfect vehicle that connects everybody, it gives us community and commonality and essentially permission to reach out for help. Yeah, 
I also think, though, that, you know, we can acknowledge that we've had experiences in the past that have maybe not all been super positive, but we've mm. sort of, um, you know, we are we're here today to tell the story. But also, I kind of like the thought that the future is unwritten. Mm. And actually, we can acknowledge things that have happened in the past. And, you know, what's happened has happened. But now we move forward and, um, you know, we can still, that doesn't need to stop us or limit us we can move forward and be you know create the future that we want from here on in absolutely I think that's what that's what the day does really it releases people because the commonality I guess and it was me for a long time decades in my life that you are you are either owned by your story or you own your story mm-hmm. and when you start to flip that switch and you start to share your experiences in a third party perspective so one of the things I encourage people to do is to think of your life as if Morgan Freeman were narrating your life. How cool would that be, by the way? Um, <laughs> you start to see the value of your experiences to other people. And that's what then turns your, your as you say, your adversities into a real superpower because you can give people insights, potentially even to avoid them getting into that position in the first place. Um, it's an v- ultimately powerful thing. Um, and I think that's why it's really worked well in the prison system because we are not only... Um, kind of conditioned and impacted by our own stories but the prisoners that I work with that actually are coming towards the end of sentence on the whole um, they are impacted by the people that they've impacted and there's a great deal of um, things like remorse and acceptance and one of the three-step processes that I I work through in my talks actually is through acceptance like you said to fully accept everything that's gone before that survival element of how long can you stay there whilst you sort stuff out and then the evolution, putting all that into practice, as you said, and actually making sure that your future is based on the principle, it is what you do next that counts. It's not about what's gone before. Mm. But I think very often acceptance is one of the toughest things to achieve, which is why people mm. get stuck at that point. Um, mm. I, I work with victims of domestic abuse. I work with young adults that have had very poor male role models growing up and also with, uh, students with learning difficulties. All of those environments can actually create adversities and challenges and stuff. But the same three step applies to everybody. And it's helped me personally, it's helped me professionally. Um, and the, the again, that acceptance, survival and evolution, those three things, if you work through that on any challenge, it will really push you through. The weirdest thing is in a professional environment, we're all fantastic at this. We're project focused, we're goal focused, we have plans, but we never apply the same logic to our personal lives. Oh, yeah, no, we don't, do we? Particularly, no, we don't. I'm bringing this back to an employment sort of um, scenario. Then, so, um, what do you think? um, What do you think employers could do more in terms of encouraging positive mental health in the workplace? So, this is an interesting one. I get asked this a lot. So. For me, true change comes from somewhere in the middle. Now, it depends on the size of your organization, of course, but I've had um, an interview with a CEO of an organization who was very open about his experiences with mental illness. Um, And I thought, this is fantastic. But when I was working in the client, um, because I'm on a retained basis with them, when I was working in the client a month later, well, somebody said to me, well, it's easy for him to be open about it. He's got no fear of being dismissed or judged or ridiculed. So for me, the true change in a larger organization comes from team managers, line managers, people leaders, people like yourself, people, people. Um, the true change comes from the middle for me. It cannot come from the bottom. It cannot come from the top. It comes from the middle and goes out. That's my opinion uh, from working in this space all the time. 
which is why I think that people like you, and I think this is why I've done so much with the CIBD, is that people like yourselves, you're the people that's driving the culture change and more power to your elbow as well. Um, <laughs> in a smaller organization for employers, actually it's quite simple, is starting to ask emotionally led open questions. So we're programmed to do that kind of, how are you? I'm great, thanks, how are you? We always give a positive on that kind of first response. So it's the reason why Mental Health UK did the Ask Twice campaign. But if you say to somebody, but how are you feeling? It's a really basic example of an openly, sorry, an, an emotionally led open question. It demands an emotionally led open response in that sense. Um, I think trust is then uh, generated over a period of time. I always say that if you're trying to support anybody, whether it's personally or professionally, everything is about context. It's about your relationship with that person. And the closer you are to somebody, the near on impossible it is to help them, especially from a personal point of view as well, because the context is, is different. I was at a, an event in, uh, I was speaking at XR London in May, and the speaker before me said this amazing piece of information. I thought, that's amazing. I love that. That's going to be a game changer for me. And at the end of the tour, I come back home and I told my wife and I said, I heard this, this is going to be brilliant. And she said, I told you that last year. <laughs> but the difference was because the context was from wife to husband, you always right. have to get a bit like what's her agenda, that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting one that it very much is about your relationship with the person. I think now more than ever, it's about human to human connection as leaders, as employers, as people leaders. No longer can we generalize. Uh, no longer can we, as a 45 year old guy, I was trained, actually trained to lead through instruction. So you tell people what to do and they'll do it. However, now it's about emotional leadership. Now it's about leading through influence. It's your ability to have multiple conversations and understanding in a team of 10 people, 10 massively different experiences of life and business right now. Um, I think the challenge to that is what we call in the frontline um, compassion fatigue. It seems to have set in. We start to live in quite a passive aggressive society at the moment. There's a lot of strong opinions, a lot of platforms to share those opinions on. And it is filtering down. So we really need to be mindful of that and bring back the compassion-led approach. Interesting. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. And what was the nugget that the speaker said in May that uh, your wife said she'd already said? It was about, it actually was about weight loss. It was about kind of, he was talking about, um, I'll give him a shout out, there's a guy called Carl Reader, great guy. Um, he was talking about actually the impact of his physical health in relation to his entrepreneurial success and how it kind of then tips over into other areas of life, like his personal life, and he had children, so looking after his kids and that kind of stuff. I just thought I just needed to hear it. I was in the right space to hear it, I think, because I've spent so long working on my mental health. Actually, I let, as a six-foot-three, 24-stone now guy, um, that I just needed to hear that at the time, because physically I know it wasn't healthy for me, but actually my relationship with body image was big as good, big as strong, and it's been quite mm -hmm. hard to come away from that, and there's something else I go into in my talks, actually. Um, mm. But since that talk, I'm like now, what, a couple of stone down and doing well. So uh, it's on, on the right path. But, but like I said, it was the same advice as my wife gave me the year before. So uh, there we go. <laughs> I think as well, you've got to be in the right headspace to hear it as, as well. Not just having the proximity with the person, but um, you've got yeah. to be in the right. Because, you know, life is busy and noisy and, and you've got to filter some things out sometimes. Otherwise, you'd go a bit mad, I think. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Great. Okay, cool. So um, I'd just like to hear from you about some success stories, really. Like what uh, what have you seen amongst your clients who've been working with you? 
Okay, so th- what I love, what I love is when I have people that are from a traditionally corporate environment start to show more of themselves. So mm. I guess the, there's a couple of examples. I think the first one was um, uh, Welcome Break Group, so the service station people. All the, um, they had a, a executive conference, and all the executive level people were giving a keynote at this this conference. And and I was invited along to run this kind of find your voice session for them, all around starting to inject your own experiences and stories and characteristics into your talks. And um, yeah, and with the greatest of respect, initially was with some met with a little bit of resistance because it's very different from the kind of the corporate presentation skills kind of thing, which isn't me at all. Um, but by the end of the day, we had such an amazing day and the conference was the week after. So um, the day after, the the, the organisers found out, she said, that was amazing. Like people were sharing their stuff from the stage and actually forging a, such a connection with the team and the people that they've known for years on a hugely different level because they're sharing more of themselves. And I think there's an argument mm. for that, that unless you're showing the world your true self, how do you expect the world to engage with you on your terms? And actually, I see this a lot with them. Um, the last CIPD thing I did was about if you are in a room full of other HR professionals, for example, what's your unique selling point? It's not about products and services. Actually, it's you. You are your own selling point. But how much of you are you prepared to share? So anyway, that, that was the first one. Welcome break. The other one was um, was tonight. Actually, I was talking about it just before I hit record. So the PA forum, uh, as we record this today, uh, mm-hmm. have their awards dinner tonight, which I was very pleased to be a, a judge uh, on one of the panels. And I go to the awards dinner later on, but I, I work every month with them and I deliver a find your voice program to them too, like a speaker and influencer kind of program. And again, it's the the admin, so they're for PAs and EAs and VAs, the, the admin seem are crucial to any business, to any workplace, but massively undersung and mm. traditionally quite quiet in terms of the input. It's usually just very receptive. So the work I've done, it's been amazing to see the, the the reaction of people actually starting to step up for awards and to be able to give acceptance speeches and to, to deliver talks at their conference recently that they never did before about their own personal experiences. And yeah, that's what I love. I love to see the humans coming through and dropping the mask and, and actually showing the human because that's what we connect with. People yeah. don't connect with businesses. People don't connect with personas. They connect with humans um, and understanding that People that love you will really love you, and people that don't get you will don't get you, and that's okay. That goes the same for everybody. But for me, that's one of the biggest wins. Yeah, that's a big lesson, isn't it? For to that, that you don't need to be loved or liked particularly by everybody um, because you're not going to be everyone's cup of tea, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and, and that's okay. Like I said, it's the there's something I talk about called the sensitivity hangover, which is very often when you start to share more of yourself, whether it's on a podcast on a video on a in a talk the morning after you think oh I didn't say that did I (laughs) I I used to call it the beer fear back in my drinking days but that's long gone now Um, (laughs) but the sensitivity hangover is a very real thing it doesn't mean to say you're right it just means to say that you you've shared a little bit more so be prepared for that sensitivity hangover um but I, I do believe the more that you share of yourself the more the stronger the deeper the faster connections you forge with the right people and you find your right place in life you also mm. interestingly start to attract the right people too um and this is yeah. why when we, we first started talking I was not surprised that we hit it off straight away because that's kind of 
I put out there what I'd put out there, you put out there what you put out there. Mutual connections have said very nice things about you too. So again, there was <laughs> there was a, a general level of I'm really cool with this before I even met you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's interesting because sort of five and a half years ago when I set up the, my consultancy, I, I did I think try to be everything to all people because you feel that you. Um, might miss opportunities or you you know you just feel that you should it's that word should again you should be able to help everybody but actually it's fine if you don't because yeah. then you just get clients that that um meet with your sort of values and and so it's a more natural fit anyway so everyone's going to be happier basically it's going to be a win-win for the client and for me because we just fit better so Absolutely. yeah it's really interesting Oh, brilliant. Thank you. I think we're coming towards the end of our time. I just oh, I wondered if there's Thank you. <laughs> anything that you might um, want to say that we haven't already covered. So the quote that I love to use is, um, I was hoping to require, uh, re retire this quote in January 2022, actually. For many years, I was using this quote, every storm runs out of rain. And I love that. And it's it's written on my wall. It's on some of the oh. merchandise I put out as well. Um, and I love it. And it's a great, if you're into country music, it's a great track by Gary Allen as well, on the off chance. Um, <laughs> big country music fan. Uh, it's not all about losing your doggy and misses. A lot of it is, to be fair, but a lot of it isn't. Um, <laughs> but the, um, yeah, and January 2022, I thought, okay, the pandemic's on the way out. The, the economy's on the way back. What could possibly go wrong in 2022? 15 prime mm -hmm. ministers, a change of monarch, and a global conflict later. I'm still saying it now. So every storm does run out of rain. Every storm <laughs> you've ever been through, you've at least survived because you're here. Most of the time you thrive. Most of the time you learn. Most of the time you evolve. You just never see it at the time. Mm. And it's remembering it's when people lose hope or the hope of something better. That's when the world gets quite a dark and dangerous place. And our role as decent human beings is to give people hope to signpost them to a way forward that they cannot see right now, then we know that we've done the best we can without taking on that burden of trying to fix everybody or indeed hiding from everybody as well. Mm, yeah, thank you. That's a really good point and a great quote. Thank you. Okay, Nick, if people would like to get in touch with you, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, nice and simple, just like me, is <laughs> nickelston.com. That's it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great to have a chat. Thank you, Nick. I loved it, Polly. Thank you very much for your time. Cheers. Mm -hmm.